Chapter Two of the Case of Jenny Brace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Case of Jenny Brace by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter Two. There is not much sleeping done in the flood district during a spring flood. The gas was shut off and I gave Mr. Reynolds and the Ladleys each a lamp. I sat in the back room that I had made into a temporary kitchen, with a candle and with a bedquilt around my shoulders. The water rose fast in the lower hall, but by midnight, at the seventh step, it stopped rising and stood still. I always have a skiff during the flood season, and as the water rose, I tied it to one spindle of the staircase after another. I made myself a cup of tea, and at one o'clock I stretched out on a sofa for a few hours' sleep. I think I had been sleeping only an hour or so when someone touched me on the shoulder and I started up. It was Mr. Reynolds partly dressed. "'Someone has been in the house, Mrs. Pittman,' he said. "'They went away just now in the boat.' "'Perhaps it was Peter,' I suggested. "'That dog is always wandering round at night.' "'Not unless Peter can row a boat,' said Mr. Reynolds dryly. "'I got up, being already fully dressed, and taking the candle, we went to the staircase. "'I noticed that it was a minute or so after two o'clock, as we left the room. "'The boat was gone, not untied, but cut loose. "'The end of the rope was still fastened to the stair-rail.' I sat down on the stairs, and looked at Mr. Reynolds. "'It's gone,' I said. "'If the house catches fire, we'll have to drown.' "'It's rather curious when you consider it.' We both spoke softly, not to disturb the Ladleys. "'I've been awake, and I heard no boat come in. And yet, if no one came in the boat, and came from the street, they would have had to swim in.' I felt queer and creepy. The street door was open, of course, and the lights going beyond. It gave me a strange feeling to sit there in the darkness on the stairs, with the arch of the front door like the entrance to a cavern, and see now and then a chunk of ice slide into view, turn around in the eddy, and pass on. It was bitter cold, too, and the wind was rising. "'I'll go through the house.' said Mr. Reynolds. There's likely nothing worse the matter than some drunken mill-hand on a vacation, while the mills are under water. But I'd better look. He left me, and I sat there alone in the darkness. I had a presentiment of something wrong, but I tried to think it was only discomfort and the cold. The water, driven in by the wind, swirled at my feet, and something dark floated in and lodged in on the step below. I reached down and touched it. It was a dead kitten. I had never known a dead cat to bring me anything but bad luck, and here was one washed in at my very feet. Mr. Reynolds came back soon and reported the house quiet and in order. But I found Peter shut up in one of the third-floor rooms, he said. Did you put him there? I had not, and said so. But as the dog went everywhere, and the door might have blown shut, we did not attach much importance to that at the time. Well, the skiff was gone, and there was no use worrying about it until morning. I went back to the sofa to keep warm, 
but I left my candle lighted and my door open. I did not sleep. The dead cat was on my mind, and as if it were not bad enough to have it washed in at my feet, about four in the morning, Peter, prowling uneasily, discovered it and brought it in and put it on my couch, wet and stiff. Poor little thing. I looked at the clock. It was a quarter after four, and except for the occasional crunch of one ice-cake hitting another in the yard, everything was quiet. And then I heard the stealthy sound of oars in the lower hall. I am not a brave woman. I lay there hoping Mr. Reynolds would hear and open his door. But he was sleeping soundly. Peter snarled and ran out into the hall, and the next moment I heard Mr. Ladley speaking. "'Down, Peter,' he said. "'Down! Go and lie down!' I took my candle and went out into the hall. Mr. Ladley was stooping over the boat, trying to tie it to the staircase. The rope was short, having been cut, and he was having trouble. Perhaps it was the candlelight, but he looked ghost-white and haggard. "'I borrowed your boat, Mrs. Pittman,' he said civilly enough. "'Mrs. Ladley was not well, and I—I I went to the drug store. "'You've been more than two hours going to the drug store, I said. He muttered something about not finding any open at first, and went into his room. He closed and locked the door behind him, and although Peter whined and scratched, he did not let him in. He looked so agitated that I thought I had been harsh, and that perhaps she was really ill. I knocked at the door and asked if I could do anything, but he only called no curtly through the door, and asked me to take that infernal dog away. I went back to bed and tried to sleep, for the water had dropped an inch or so on the stairs, and I knew the danger was over. Peter came, shivering at dawn, and got onto the sofa with me. I put an end of the quilt over him, and he stopped shivering after a time, and went to sleep. The dog was company. I lay there wide awake, thinking about Mr. Pittman's death, and how I had come by degrees to be keeping a cheap boarding-house in the flood district, and to having to take impudence from everybody who chose to rent a room for me, and to being called a she-devil. From that I got to thinking again about the Ladleys, and how she had said he was a fiend, and to doubting about his having gone out for medicine for her. I dozed off again at daylight, and being worn out, I slept heavily. At seven o'clock Mr. Reynolds came to the door, dressed for the store. He was a tall man of about fifty, neat and orderly in his habits, and he always remembered that I had seen better days, and treated me as a lady. "'Never mind about breakfast for me this morning, Mrs. Pittman,' he said. "'I get a cup of coffee at the other end of the bridge. I'll take the boat and send it back with Terry.' He turned and went along the hall and down to the boat. I heard him push off from the stairs with an oar, and row out into the street. Peter followed him to the stairs. At a quarter after seven, Mr. Ladley came out and called to me. "'Just bring in a cup of coffee and some toast,' he said. "'Enough for one.' He went back and slammed his door, and I made his coffee. I stipped a cup of tea for Mrs. Ladley at the same time. He opened the door just wide enough for the tray, and took it without so much as a thank you. He had a cigarette in his mouth as usual, and I could see a fire in the grate and smell something like scorching cloth. 
"'I hope Mrs. Ladley is better,' I said, getting my foot in the crack of the door, so he could not quite close it. It smelled to me as if he had accidentally set fire to something with a cigarette, and I tried to see into the room. "'What about Mrs. Ladley?' he snapped. "'You said she was ill last night.' "'Oh, yes, well, she wasn't very sick. She's better.' "'Shall I bring her some tea?' "'Take your foot away,' he ordered. "'No, she doesn't want tea. She's not here.' "'Not here?' "'Good heavens!' he snarled. "'Is her going away anything to make such a fuss about? The Lord knows I'd be glad to get out of this infernal pig well all myself.' "'If you mean my house,' I began. But he pulled himself together, and was more polite, when he answered, "'I mean the neighborhood. Your house is all that could be desired for the money. If we do not have linen sheets and double cream, we're paying monthly milk prices.' Either my nose was growing accustomed to the odor, or it was dying away. I took my foot away from the door. "'What did Mrs. Ladley leave?' I asked. "'This morning, very early. I rode her to Federal Street.' "'You couldn't have had much sleep,' I said dryly, for he looked horrible. There were lines around his eyes, which were red, and his lips looked dry and cracked. "'She's not to the piece this week at the theatre. He said, licking his lips and looking past me, not at me. She'll be back by Saturday. I did not believe him. I do not think he imagined that I did. He shut the door in my face, and it caught poor Peter by the nose. The dog ran off howling, but although Mr. Ladley had been as fond of the animal as it was in his nature to be fond of anything, he paid no attention. As I started down the hall after him, I saw what Peter had been carrying, a slipper of Mrs. Ladley's. It was soaked with water. Evidently, Peter had found it floating at the foot of the stairs. Although the idea of murder had not entered my head at that time, the slipper gave me a turn. I picked it up and looked at it, a black one with a beaded toe, short in the vamp and high-heeled, the sort most actresses wear. Then I went back and knocked at the door of the front room again. "'What the devil do you want now?' he called from beyond the door. "'Here's a slipper of Mrs. Ladley's,' I said. Peter found it floating in the lower hall. He opened the door wide and let me in. The room was in tolerable order, much better than when Mrs. Ladley was about. He looked at the slipper, but he did not touch it. "'I don't think that is hers,' he said. "'I've seen her wear it a hundred times.' "'Well?' She'll never wear it again. And then, seeing me stare, he added, It's ruined with the water. Throw it out. And, by the way, I'm sorry, but I set fire to one of the pillow slips, dropped asleep, and my cigarette did the rest. Just put it on the bill. He pointed to the bed. One of the pillows had no slip, and the ticking cover had a scorch or two on it. I went over and looked at it. "'The pillow will have to be paid for, too, Mr. Ladley,' I said. "'And there's a sign nailed on the door that forbids smoking in bed. "'If you're going to set fire to things, I shall have to charge extra.' "'Really?' he jeered, looking at me with his cold, fishy eyes. 
Is there any sign on the door saying that boarders are charged extra for seven feet of filthy river in the bedrooms? I was never a match for him, and I make it a principle never to bandy words with my boarders. I took the pillow and the slipper and went out. The telephone was ringing on the stair landing. It was the theater asking for Miss Bryce. She has gone away, I said. What do you mean? Moved away? Gone for a few days' vacation, I replied. She isn't playing this week, is she? Wait a moment, said the voice. There was a hum of conversation from the other end, and then another man came to the telephone. Can you find out where Miss Bryce has gone? I'll see. I went to the Ladley's door and knocked. Mr. Ladley answered from just beyond. The theater is asking where Mrs. Ladley is. Tell them I don't know, he snarled, and shut the door. I took his message to the telephone. Whoever it was, swore and hung up the receiver. All the morning I was uneasy. I hardly knew why. Peter felt it as I did. There was no sound from the Ladley's room, and the house was quiet, except for the lapping water on the stairs and the police patrol going back and forth. At eleven o'clock a boy in the neighborhood, paddling on a raft, fell into the water and was drowned. I watched the police boat go past, carrying his little cold body, and after that I was good for nothing. I went and sat with Peter on the stairs. The dog's conduct had been strange all morning. He had sat just above the water, looking at it and whimpering. Perhaps he was expecting another kitten, or— it is hard to say how ideas first enter one's mind, but the notion that Mr. Ladley had killed his wife and thrown her body into the water came to me as I sat there. All at once I seemed to see it all. The quarreling the day before, the night trip in the boat, the water-soaked slipper, his haggard face that morning, even the way the spaniel sat and stared at the flood. Terry brought the boat back at half-past eleven, towing it behind another. "'Well,' I said from the stairs, "'I hope you've had a pleasant morning.' "'What doin'?' he asked, not looking at me. "'Rubbing about the streets. You've had that boat for hours.' He tied it up without a word to me, but he spoke to the dog. "'Good morning, Peter,' he said. "'It's nice weather for fishes, ain't it?' He picked out a bit of floating wood from the water, and showing it to the dog, flung it into the parlor. Peter went after it with a splash. He was pretty fat, and when he came back, I heard him wheezing. But what he brought back was not the stick of wood. It was the knife I used for cutting bread. It had been on the shelf in the room where I had slept the night before, and now Peter brought it out of the flood where its wooden handle had kept it afloat. The blade was broken off short. It is not unusual to find one's household goods floating around during flood time. More than once I've lost a chair or two, and seen it after the water had gone down, new, scrubbed, and painted, in Molly Maguire's kitchen next door. And perhaps now and then a bit of luck would come to me. A dog kennel, or a chicken house, or a kitchen table, or even, as happened once, a month-old baby in a wooden cradle that lodged against my back fence and had come forty miles as it turned out 
with no worse mishaps than a cold in its head. But the knife was different. I'd put it on the mantel over the stove I was using upstairs the night before, and hadn't touched it since. As I sat staring at it, Terry took it from Peter and handed it to me. "'Better give me a penny, Mrs. Pittman,' he said in his impudent Irish way. "'I had to give you a knife. You may cut our friendship.' I reached over to hit him a clout on the head, but I did not. The sunlight was coming in through the window at the top of the stairs, and shining on the rope that was tied to the banister. The end of the rope was covered with stains, brown with a glint of red in them. I got up, shivering. "'You can get the meat at the butcher's, Terry,' I said, "'and come back for me in a half-hour. Then I turned and went upstairs, weak in the knees, to put on my hat and coat. I had made up my mind that there had been murder done. End of chapter 2